Hey everyone, I wanted to let you know that this week's episode has a really cool kind of special feature where there's a bonus episode that uh, you can only get access to if you are a Patreon member of Drum History. So if you're interested in getting that bonus episode, which is about 40 minutes of Vincent and I talking about more 5,000 stuff, um, some cool stories and additional information, you can head to drumhistorypodcast.com and click the Patreon link and it'll take you there and it's as cheap as two bucks a month and you get this special episode and we'll be doing more of these in the future with future guests. So um, yeah, enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by my good friend, Vincent Ward of Vitalizer Drums. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, it's awesome to have you back because uh, I, I, I say that I'm fr- I, I am friends with everyone who comes on the show, um, but you and I actually are friends and we've you yeah. know shared a booth at the Chicago show and, um, and I have just like bounced a lot of ideas off of you because you're a really good listener of the show, which I love, but I'll, I'll say, hey, what do you think about this? And then you're, you're kind of an honest opinion, so it's, it's awesome to have you back. You were first on episode five about Speed Kings and now you're back, which is great. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you for, I know a lot of people say this, but thank you for doing the podcast. It's really, if you're a person who has any kind of uh, downtime driving or working, it's it's really nice to have podcasts and it's really cool to listen to stuff that is in um, you know your chosen subject. For sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, um, so today we're talking about the, uh, the 5,000 pedal, which maybe people know it as the DW 5,000 pedal, but that's there's a long history behind it. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll hop into um, the, the topic today. But uh, yeah, tell us about you. Okay. Um, I am a professional restorer and collector of vintage bass drum pedals uh, with emphasis on restoring them so that they're playable while maintaining the historical accuracy and originality of the pedal. So uh, for the last five years, I've operated a business called Vitalizer Drums, which does high-level mechanical and cosmetic restorations, um, primarily for vintage bass drum pedals, but also um, hi-hats and other hardware as well, currently by special requests only, um, just due to the, the workload. But during the time period of operating the business, I became a personal collector as well, um, just through getting things that I, I became interested in before I knew it, I had a personal collection <laughs> that's now uh, fairly large, but um, restoring pedals is really fun. A lot of people do it themselves. Um, it's very gratifying and there's a big payoff um, in that if you succeed, you get a playable pedal. A lot of pedals, especially old pedals, they're not operational any longer, but they need something to make them um make them playable again. So that, that's really fun to do. And um, along the way, you can learn about the history and the evolution of pedals themselves. Um, it's a relatively short history, you know, about um, 100 or 120 years total. But with the 5,000 pedals specifically, there's a really interesting history in that it dates back to before World War II and is currently still going on with DW pedals. Um, So I would consider myself in the early stages of researching 5,000 pedals, um, but I've definitely started to devote 
more time to them. Yeah, that's awesome. They um, and you say you're in the early stages, and and I I say this uh, in a great way. You're you're very thorough. Yes, of <laughs> going through and creating stuff, even because when when we kind of started to get this idea together, I mean, you've been working on this outline. I'm sure you're not doing 12 hours a day, um, every seven days a week on it, but like, but really you put together a awesome outline here, um, which I will include on the drum history podcast.com, um, episode page for this. Anyway, you're very thorough, which I love and very prepared. And, um, and I'll tell people before we even get into it, that the stuff you do with the speed Kings and just the restorations are like awesome i mean it's just so cool for me to see like these classic pedals which you know would really get rusted over and just kind of like nothing would happen with them and you're making them basically new um which is really cool well the 5000 is is specifically interesting for this specific purpose because you can get modern parts from dw that retrofit it so that's cool a, a problem with speed king for example is the only parts for it that are really usable are all discontinued. The new Speed King, not all of the parts, not many of them are compatible with the old ones. So yeah. you're always trying to source parts, but with the 5000 pedal, you can source any part you need. And there's also, in addition, a lot of vintage parts available. So Sure, yeah. And that's how we, I know I said it on our episode, which was like 70 or 80 episodes ago, but yeah. um, I sold you some Speed King parts that I got uh, at a music auction I went to where I think I paid $10 and it was a um, little like, I shouldn't have told you that because I sold it to you, but um, <laughs> but it was like a, a little box that was just full of old Speed King parts. And I think it was like one and a half, quote unquote, full pedals. And um, again, knowing that they, they came back to life with you as um, super cool. But um, anyway, without further ado... I think it's a good time to jump in now to the the history um, of the 5000 pedal um, that we all know and love. I know I have an old one that is great, and then I have a newer double pedal that I can talk about more later because it actually broke and I had to get a new chain, which I think there's probably maybe something to to, to talk about with that, with the quality and all that later. But um, so, uh, yeah, take it away. Cool. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to preface this timeline um, by saying that the information presented here is to the best of my current knowledge. Um, some of the stuff from my speaking episode uh, did uh, change. <laughs> so um, yeah. the, the information is always um, open to interpretation. I'm always glad to gain new information, even if it's contradictory to what I currently think. It's, to me, there's no... Um, hubris in it. It's, it's really just about figuring out the mystery because as you'll see, when we start, we're going to start before World War II and that time period, there is no, there's no firsthand accounts anymore. You have the items, but even those are, are pretty rare. So sure. the history of 5,000 starts and especially at the beginning, these are estimated dates because there's no literature during this time period for Martin Fleetfoot, which is the parent company, the company that designed, I wasn't able to find the exact patent, but somewhere in, in the patent database, you, you could find this. Um, but they had basically just two products that they, that they made. 
it's it seems like they probably just made these um these pedals but the martin fleefa company is was based in minneapolis minnesota um there's not a lot of definitive information about them because there's no known literature and Mm -hmm. the pedals themselves are are relatively rare um so uh the 5000 pedal is with the hinged footboard and the 5001 is with the one piece footboard. Um, I just sort of assigned these, these numbers because that's what was used a little bit later by um, Camco, but you'll see two different types. And um, it was probably developed before world war two and patented um, as has been discussed in many other episodes you've done the whole world kind of stopped during world war two, especially for the countries more directly involved. So let's, let's say that whoever designed it at Martin Fleetfoot, there, there are pedals that I believe were made before the war because they say, um, patent applied for instead of, um, later where it would just, where it would say patented or say nothing at all on the footboards. Um, so I think they were, they were developed and patented it may have been approved before the war or maybe afterwards, but um, the war happens, 1946 comes, and you're allowed to use metal again. And that's when the real history begins. So it's already been designed by Martin Fleetfoot. Um, and at this point, I think that they did all of the manufacturing as well. So of this time period, let's say, late 40s, early 50s, you see a lot of what I call stencil versions of the 5000 pedal. So you've got your Martin Fleetfoot pedals, um, but you've also got Gretsch floating action, which Martin Fleetfoot was making that for them. It's identical to their pedal, except the casting for the footboard is different. So that's what sort of tells me that the manufacturing if pedals were manufactured in, in different places, there, there would be more differences. But if you put yeah. one next to the other, they're identical except for the branding. There's also two other extremely rare versions. People use rare and vintage drums in a very liberal way. Um, I've heard people <laughs> say that um, superphonics are rare. <laughs> um, <laughs> when there's like a million of them. Yeah. But there there are stencil versions that say Power Sonic on them. I've only seen one. And Elite Toronto, which was probably in, in Canada. Um, again, I've only seen one. Uh, but it's possible there, there were others. But basically, you can imagine Martin Fleetfoot um, in Minneapolis and they're making pedals for anyone who wants them that was that was their business model um yeah anything that is old um and wasn't mass produced becomes truly rare and by that Mm -hmm. i mean i've probably seen maybe 15 um and i look for them um ever (laughs) i've seen 15 (laughs) There's certainly more. The The thing is that it's a, it's a very interesting item to, to people. Um, a lot of guys have one on their shelf and they, you know, they wouldn't sell it because to them, sure. to them it's interesting, even if they don't play it. Um, yeah. The one that I have, I, I have three of them currently. 
Um, which, of the Mart, you have three of the Martin Fleetfoot pedals. Yeah, that sounds kind of greedy that I have three out of fifteen <laughs> of the world's current population. But I, I am willi- good for you. I'm always willing to sell things. If you want one, contact me. Um, <laughs> two of them were broken when they came to me, um, and the way that they typically break is on the leather hinge. Um, so. Sure. Basically, what are those worth? I mean, what is the value of those? Not to like, I don't know if that's a um, rude question, but uh, I got mine for almost any pedal. If someone doesn't know what it is, you can get for about $50. That's just wow. seems to be that, that seems to be people's going rate of what they think a pedal is worth. Now, to me, what about like a pristine mint one that's like per- perfectly restored? Are those like, you know, 250 is usually the cap of the market because. Um, the people yeah. who are willing to pay that much include myself, my friend, Steve, who I mentioned last time, um, yes. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll try to give him some more shout outs, um, later, but he is exactly like me in terms of the details. He wants everything to be correct. So if for some reason, a, a new old stock or very lightly played Martin Fleetfoot came up, especially if it was pre-war, because that's extremely rare, um, I would pay a lot of money for it. <laughs> I'll just yeah, say that. Sure. Okay. So, and I know we have to like move forward here, but can I ask you a couple quick questions that you can just rattle off the answers to? Sure. Well, first off, a comment. I like that it says patent applied for. That's just kind of like unique. It's like, hey, we applied for it. It doesn't mean we're going to get it. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's pending. It just, I like how it says patent applied for. That's cool. And then just to um, clarify, the Martin Fleetfoot pedal is not you did say this. It's not technically a 5,000 or a 5,001 pedal. Those are just so we can kind of like talk about it and put it into perspective. It's just known as like a Martin Fleetfoot pedal, right? Yeah, because there's no literature, you can't know. But sure. I, I think they probably did call it the, the 5,000 because um, otherwise um, they were making pedals for Camco during this, peri- this period too. So Okay, yeah. And, and Gretsch was called something a little bit different. Um, so uh, hopefully the, the questions will be um, will be a- answered as as we go through. I wanted to, qu- sure. to okay. quickly go over the basic features because they remain pretty constant all the way into today's pedals, which are obviously manufactured in, in a different way, um, in a different country with different materials, but the design remains the same. So you have um, cast aluminum components. Aluminum is a good lightweight metal that's also strong um and you can you can reinforce it it's um definitely a good a good metal to start with um it has a hex rocker rod so because it's a hex it can't rotate or loosen nearly as easily Mm -hmm. it's a very solid way to connect it um even the earliest ones have rocker rod um bearings in there so bearings are the critical aspect of any pedal design that make it play smoothly uh the eccentric cam that's what the what the strap um goes over that's probably how they were awarded their first patent because that eccentric cam is unique enough over anything that came before it that it would warrant um being awarded the patent but that also um definitely affects the way that uh the pedal feels uh, at the end of the cam, you have what what is referred to as a stroke regulator. Um, on later pedals, this is a four point where you can move the position of that into e- either of these points, and it 
dramatically changes the the feel of the pedal and also where the beater sits. Um, spring adjustment, um, pretty standard. Uh, leather strap, and then the leather heel plate hinge is is the last feature that was on Martin Fleetfoot pedals specifically. Cool. And now, as you know, as we're doing the features, I'm wondering. Um, obviously, this pedal, the design has been around for like. 80 years if my math is correct so yeah my question is is like what was the predecessor to this like what pedals maybe like visually you can kind of describe what would people be using before this uh in like let's say the 30s i guess the speed king would be around right i mean yeah but is this pretty this was pretty revolutionary right i guess it kind of comes down to the question of like what makes the 5000 so such a game changer in general it was definitely re- revolutionary. Um, as far as predecessor models, Speed King something completely different. And that's that's its own um, unique type of pedal with the compression yeah. springs. But um, so the original Ludwig pedal, uh, people always call them 1909 pedals, but that was really just when it was developed and patented. I've never actually seen one that's from 1909. I have some very early ones and I know people have some very early ones, but let's say that it's, 1910 or 1911. If you look at that design, it's not dissimilar from a 5000. And the the main feature, of course, is the extension spring, but that's the archetype for all pedals after it. Everything goes, everything kind of goes back to the original pedal. And I'm sure there may have been uh, influences on that pedal as well, but there was also a pedal called the Ludwig Comet. The Comet pedal, if, if you look at it, is a similar design. It's got s- some similar features. But yeah, definitely with prior to that, the, the cast pedals were a heavier material. I, I'm not exactly sure sure what it was. Okay. But um, yeah, the 5000 by Martin Fleetfoot was definitely very revolutionary for his time. Got it. Okay, now we can stick to the uh, outline that you've uh, beautifully put together, and I'll stop uh, <laughs> derailing us. Oh, no, that, that's okay. Right. okay. Carry on. So Martin Fleetfoot made pedals under their own brand. Uh, they also, at Gretsch and Camco were the, the biggest imprint brands. So Gretsch 5000 pedals actually span the entire range from 1946 to 1985 when... The, their pedal lineup changed a little bit, but they called their pedal the 4955 Floating Action, and they had a, a, a lower priced model called the Professional for uh, 4956. And um, Gretsch never owned any patent or tooling for this pedal. All the manufacturing was done by Martin Fleetfoot until it transferred, which we'll get into a little bit later. But um, you see a lot of Gretsch 5000 pedals because the design remains largely unchanged um, from 1946 to 1965 when Camco makes some changes. Um, Gretsches are primarily leather strap. There's some nylon strap examples from the mid 60s onwards. And um, fast forwarding way into the early 80s as a uh, Gretsch also had a, a single chain turbo version of their pedal. Um, I've never seen a Gretsch one piece footboard, but um, 
I have seen Camco One Piece footboards from this time period. Um, there's also Gretsch yeah. pedals. There's one on Reverb right now that I've been trying not to buy. Um, there, there's there's <laughs> a Gretsch pedal. I think I'm looking on, at it. On, Re- cool. on Reverb that has a leather hinge. So that was almost certainly made by Martin Fleetfoot um, prior to Camco. Gotcha. Yeah, and man, I mean, you just see that pedal board from a mile away, and and you know that like it's just so iconic. It's like I don't want to say it looks kind of like a fish, but you know what I mean. Like it has yeah. that design of like, well, it does look like a fish. Um, <laughs> it it um it's very iconic and just it's, it it obviously caught on. And and I I would prefer the the two piece with the 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 disconnected, you know, the the lower the foot yeah plate that's not you know because that's just what reminds me of like a normal modern 5000 but uh it's it's cool. more it's more versatile too you have to like a one piece footboard where uh, a hinged footboard is going to cater to everybody in- including those those people everyone's able to to play it without a feeling um strange so um still in the the late 40s early 50s time period there are camco pedals being made as well by Martin Fleetfoot um and if you remember from the Camco episode, Camco didn't start making drums until the early 60s. In the 50s, they were George Way. So you see the George Way catalog, but also in a, a catalog that I just found recently through a, a friend, um, Camco did exist in the 50s. They just they sold mostly hardware and accessories and the 5000 pedal. Although, hmm. in my opinion, they weren't making it at this time it seems almost impossible to, to determine that. So there's um, some guesswork involved in that. Sure. But the Camco, yeah. the Camco version is identical to the, the Gretsch version and the Martin Fleetfoot version that were being produced at the same time. They're all, all the same. So every, so these would be created, like you said, in let's probably Minneapolis where Martin Fleetfoot was doing it. Yep. And then just kind of like the white label, you know, stencil, they would just be stamped with Camco or George Way or whatever it would say. Um, and then be sent out, right? Yeah, the, the footboards were the only part that that was was different. So Gretsch probably had to invest in getting that that die made for their and then the 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 more obscure ones, like the Power Sonic and the Elite Toronto, they're much more simple. So that was a may have been a more simple process of doing it. But um so got it. The, the, the next era I would call the Camco era because in the, in the mid fifties, at some point between 1950 and 1960, this is estimated. Martin Fleetfoot decided to sell the patent, the manufacturing, the dyes, the tooling, everything. And Camco bought the, it's pretty, pretty well accepted that Camco probably took over everything at, at this point. They, they would have been well situated. To, to do so, being a machine shop and with their, mm-hmm. with their existing um, infrastructure. So sure. at this point, Martin retires. We'll just call him Martin since nobody knows who invented this pedal. <laughs> I was just going to say, is Martin Fleetfoot a person or is, do you think that's like a made up? It can't be. It's too good of a name to be real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like john baker and he's a baker kind of thing. yeah i mean it's it's, yeah. a, it's a cool name and and what's what's cool is that uh you know you're always going to be able to identify it because the, the castings the castings uh 
last a really long time. So it, it's yeah. it's cool that there's um, there's another version of of the Fleet Foot which I, I um, it's a little different. There's they're like painted gold. I've seen ones that are painted green. I think it may have been some kind of international type thing. Um, I just wanted to throw that in there real quick. I didn't find yeah. enough definitive information, but I have seen them. There's pictures of them online. Uh, if you know something cool. about those, uh, contact me. Um, cool. Okay, so now we're in the Camco era, and this is when the pedal really comes into its own and actually starts being improved upon. So um, Camco has two models, the 5000, known as the Deluxe, and the 6000, known as the, as the Standard. The only difference between the two is that the 6000 has, a, instead of having a hex rocker shaft, it has a circular rocker shaft with um, kind of a cheaper system, but it's still, it's still a strap. It doesn't have a cam. It just hooks onto like a little, um, a little like kind of Y uh, bolt thing. Um, and so y- you do see those for Camco and Gretsch. I've never seen a fleet foot one so that I'm ble- I'm led to believe that that's a Camco invention. Um, so they produced them for a while without changes. And then in the mid sixties, um, maybe, you know, at, the, at this point they're producing drums, they're a bigger company. They probably have bigger budgets. They have an R and D department. I'm sure they start making changes. So the leather strap would stretch out. So they made a nylon strap, which turns out also stretches out. But at the time they, they may have thought that it was um, better and it probably was better in terms of long-term durability Mm-hmm. Um, but they also changed the rocker cam. So it's a pressed steel plate, chrome plated instead of the, the cast or machined aluminum piece. And they, the, there's a period where they weren't producing the one foot, the one piece footboard. They start producing that again about the mid sixties as the 5,000 S. Um, and it's a little bit different. It doesn't have a, a leather hinge. It's actually, um, it's a different a different system. You can tell that they they developed it. Um, but during this period, Camco is still manufacturing the floating actions four nine five fives for Gretsch, and you can tell this because you'll you'll see later Gretsch ones. They get the same exact changes that the Camco ones do. Again, they're just they're riding together throughout the whole the whole life cycle of the of the five thousand is Camco and Gretsch. Um, until the mid eighties, the one last stencil brand that they briefly had during this time period was Rogers. Actually Rogers sets from 1960 to 1963, you could get a, a Camco 5,000 pedal with them. It actually said Camco on there. They called it the, yeah. the deluxe and they had the, the lower priced version as well called the standard. Um, and those would be in catalogs, like a lot of the old yes. Rogers catalogs, you'd look at it and you'd see like, okay, you know, it'd be like Swivomatic hardware. And then you'd look and there'd be like a Camco hi-hat stand, right? I think it would be Camco hi-hat stand and bass drum pedal. I um, I believe they, they did have the, the Camco hi-hat. I'm not exactly sure. They also used that basic Wahlberg and Auger kind of like yeah. skeleton framed hi-hat. A lot of brands use that as their, as their basic hi-hat sure. during that time period. But it only existed for three years. Camco would have made these pedals um, and, and sent them to them. And then in 63, they, they released the Swivomatic pedals. And after that, they dropped the Camco pedals. 
to, to promote their own brand. Um, so that kind of covers the first era of the 5,000 pedals in, in America. Um, any questions? No, I mean, my takeaway is that like, it's just, it became such a, uh, like, like, like it was like an instant hit and then it became kind of like an industry standard where you see that with the old companies where these drum companies like Gretsch, um, for, for example, or Rogers would say like, it's cheaper for us to use this existing, um, you know, have them manufacture it and kind of like, you know, throw our logo on it and then, then them going into their own production of pedals. But I guess then like in the Rogers example, I've heard this in other episodes where like, um, maybe while they were tooling up to make their own pedals, they said, let's use Camco or something. You know what I mean? Like it take yeah. you can't make your own pedal overnight. It, it would have just been a, an option for them to, um, yeah. and, and there could be other, other pedals as well. Remember that through the whole, um, period of George way drums, obviously they existed during a very short, specific period of time. They were selling a Camco pedal. They didn't have their own imprint with their own footboard. It was probably, um, well, it was definitely way cheaper to just get the Camco version. And yeah. every, everything I've heard about John Rashan, who was the person who was in mm-hmm. charge of Camco during this time period, he seemed like a pretty ruthless guy. You know, <laughs> That's he, what he, I heard. He was, yeah. de- he was definitely trying to aggressively grow and expand his, his company. And yeah. you, you can check out other episodes for, for more history of that. Um, yep. the, the history of Camco... Um, with Joe Luoma, he, he talks about it a little bit. Ron Danette talks yeah. about it a little bit as well in, in his episode. Um, yeah. But it, it, it makes sense. If you're going to speculate, you, you want to use the information available to you. So if this was the guy who was making decisions during this time period, then everything seems to, to make sense. Um, yeah. And Camco, I mean, from a collectability standpoint, I think everything Camco, and you have camco drums yourself i mean Mm -hmm. there's just something very collectible about camco um yeah and i mean they're super nice drums and everything but like even the the camco 5000 pedal just seems like it's got a higher value than um than the rest maybe not the martin fleetfoot but um no people definitely assign a premium to anything with the word camco on it uh you see a little practice pad or a snare stand or something it's just a basic it's nothing exactly really special but if it says camco on it the price is definitely higher than other items that are that are similar that's just the way it's been for a while and probably will be due to rare rarity primarily sure sure um so there is an interesting little branch in the 5000 tree that i want to mention briefly and that is a company called john gray which has been covered in in i think a few of your different episodes that cover british brands but yep. they're a British brand. And from 1947 through 1967, when they were producing a lot of drum sets, they had two pedals, uh, the 5189 Autocrat and the 5210 Broadway. And couldn't possibly be a coincidence, um, the design of this pedal. It is identical to a Martin Fleetfoot. So based on, on what I've heard from some of your, your other guests, it's extremely hard to enforce patent, um, patent 
disputes in other countries. So I think yep. what John Gray probably did was they just got a hold of one and they reverse engineered it. And it's almost identical. You could tell it wasn't made by Martin Fleetfoot. So it's not like it's a stencil brand, but um, those are great pedals too. They have leather hinges. Um, they're, they're pretty rare as well. Um, and also, like I said, some of them are broken, but I thought that was really interesting that they, yes. that they, that they reverse engineered the Martin Fleetfoot and kind of just unapologetically sold it as their own. I mean, product. you're totally, you're totally right because it's, it's exactly like, um, I think Ron Danette said about, I said, Hey, what about Heyman drums with their, you know, the turret, the round lug? I mean, what about that? That was kind of a Camco thing. And he said, yeah, but it's that's probably what you're referring to is it's so hard to enforce it. And it's kind of like, well, okay, so Camco or Martin Fleetfoot, whatever, had um, that same design and they kind of did the exact same thing where they just like, you know, these Yankees made this uh, <laughs> pedal. <laughs> let's let's uh, let's take it. And um, well, it was a good design. You know. It was a good design, exactly. too. So from their perspective, they probably were focusing more on, on their drum line. You have to have a pedal in there if you're going to copy one and, and risk that um, risk that you might as well copy a good one. Um, so, yeah. and I think that, so the cam, the eccentric cam is probably the focus of the original Martin Fleetfoot patent. The John Gray cam is probably not coincidentally a little bit different. Um, just mm-hmm. a slightly different shape. And th- they, they advertise that in their, um, in, in their catalog as well. But that's just an interesting little branch. It, it kind of happens, you know, simultaneously. But at first I thought, you know, this must have been made by Martin Fleetfoot. But the more I looked at it, um, and, and I really like to get actual examples of these pedals. So I have at least one of all of these pedals that I, cool. I sort of collected them Basically, once I started the process of, of trying to figure out the timeline, I I just went all the way in with it and put in the effort <laughs> to find the er, the early ones. But I, I have a really yeah. a really nice autocrat. I've I've not seen a Broadway available. They're probably pretty rare, but I'm sure they're yeah, exactly. They're, I'm sure they're available uh, in the UK much more readily. Sure. So in the early seventies. This is this I consider a new era for the 5000 pedal because Camco hasn't changed it much during this time period. In fact, I don't think they make any changes at all in the 70s. But if you remember from your Camco episode, Camco had some movements. So they they went from mm-hmm. Oaklawn to Chanute to LA. And as as things moved, the, the pedal did not change. Uh, it's still a great pedal. But it does have some issues. Um, there was a drum shop in New York called Frank Ippolito's Pro Percussion, I believe. Everyone probably just referred to it as Ippolito's. But in the early 70s, there was a guy working there named Al Duffy. And he, he is no longer with us, but he, he left a lot of really good information. And he, he left specifically um, a couple different legacies in terms of things that he invented, but he, he was the first person to people were coming to him with these pedals, or maybe he just noticed this shortcoming that the leather stretches and breaks. But when it stretches your foot, after it does that a certain 
a certain amount, the footboard is going to hit the T screw for the for the toe clamp, and that's going to make mm-hmm. a clicking sound. It's also going to damage your your footboard. So his first thought was, well, there needs to be a chain here. Um, so he starts modifying these pedals, and and pretty pretty quickly he develops the chain, the single chain and sprocket system. And these pedals I've been really, uh, really looking out for. So I, I've, they're not um, terribly, terribly rare. I, I have four of them right now, pedals that were from di- various eras, but they were certainly modified at Ippolito's. Um, and he, he had, he had the, um, the idea to, he knew it was a good enough idea or someone did there. Maybe it was Frank Ippolito, but they patented it before they started mm. doing it. So, um, cool. one of the earliest ones I have, um, says something similar patent pending on it. And then later once yeah. the patent was awarded, they actually put the patent number in there. But these ones I find extremely interesting because of the parallels to what I do myself. So it, it was, it's, it's just really cool, especially on the early ones, to see that whoever did it, if it was Al Duffy or someone that he trained to do it, actually took metal punches and punched um, various things in there. Usually Ippolito's. Yeah. Sometimes I think the ones that he did, he also punched his name in there. So I have one that actually... Cool. And the cool thing about hand punching the letters is it's never going to look perfect. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it was, it was patented. Um, Elvin Jones started using it immediately and it really solved that initial problem. It was a huge improvement. The chain did not stretch and a, a nice side effect of that sprocket and chain system is that it feels really smooth compared to a, a strap drive. It's just a lot smoother of of an action. Yeah, I've had a strap drive Ludwig pedal, and it was just like, I mean, going from I think after that I got like a Iron Cobra or something, and it was like, man, this is just uh, it's the evolution is clear. It's like okay, this got better for a reason. Like obviously it was what they had, but um, just I mean. It, but I'm sure people like them now, and and I'm sure I would like it if it was well maintained. But um, the 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 chain is obviously uh, much more modern. So for people who are like maybe looking around for pedals, so if it says Ippolito's or Al Duffy, then you know you've found a super rare early pedal, right? I don't know if it's rare. There's a there's a guy who is alive and on Facebook who was part of the process. He, he was trained probably by Al Duffy to produce them. And I've heard him say, maybe it was an exaggeration that he did hundreds of them. So okay. it's, and um, they come to me in different States. One of them that I got had been completely worn out. And I made the decision rather than keeping it as kind of like a cool relic that was completely unplayable. I just fixed it. So as the as the next restore, I went in and built upon the, the work that had already been done, and I had to swap out a few parts that were that were worn. But um, I think there's a fair amount of them out there. If you see a Camco five thousand or a Gretsch, and it has a chain drive, then you can look on there, and, and usually it it will be stamped. But um, yeah, that's a pedal mm-hmm. that was converted at Ippolito's in New York. So it's cool. cool. To, it's cool to think that they're all coming from this one location. 
And um, yeah, it would have been a big improvement too. People, people who are, are, are playing playing the pedals, it would have been an me- immediate improvement. And some people do like the, the strap drive feel. Some people like the chain. But for modern pedals, people are are used to the chain feel. Um, you could get a floor plate modification as well. That was less popular. I, I don't see too many of those. So in 1978, a couple of things happened. Al Duffy moves to Nashville to work for Pearl, I believe. Camco shuts their doors and DW, which is a small-ish company producing primarily canister thrones at that, that time, if, if I recall correctly, in the late 70s, they buy up all of the, all of the Camco stuff. Um, and included in that is the pedal. And they really put a lot of work into it right away. Um, there's a good early DW piece of, of literature on drum archive that, that shows this, but um, they make some serious expansions. So I'm just going to go over really quickly. They had six different models. So remember this is expanding from the three that um, were available previously, previously 5,000 C chain and sprocket 5,000 CX chain and sprocket, but the sprocket is uh, cut. The original ones have a full circle, which will mess up your shoe over time. So, um, that's all, all modern ones have the cut in there, but at, at first that was like an option <laughs> you could get. Huh. Um, 5001 CX, that's the chain and sprocket with, with the cut sprocket and the one piece footboard. Um, the the 5000, just regular 5000, is nylon strap. 5001 nylon strap with a one piece footboard. And in the mid 80s, they have the 5002, which is the double pedal. So chain, they're all chain and sprocket. Um, and that's the double pedal. That, that's, their, that's their six different models that they had sure, yeah. in the, at that time period, early 80s. It's interesting to me that the 5000, you know, straight, the 5000 is nylon strap and the 5000 C is chain. Because you'd think that like, I don't know, I guess... Nylon is good too, but I think it would be like the standard would be the chain. But I guess it's just a different time. Not at that. T- not at that time. Um, sure, there was a lot going on at that time. That's when Japanese companies first started coming up as well. And um, I'm going to try to be brief with with some of this next information because it can get very dense. And if you want to cool. discuss it more uh, in in the Patreon episode, we, we can we can do that. But um, okay. there's a lot going on during during this time period, and a nylon strap pedal is the standard during that, that time period. Um, but there's a lot of diversification and refinement going on. They definitely did not um, just leave the, the, the pedal as is. And the reason they were able to produce the chain and sprocket is because uh, they, DW had to also buy the patent from Ippolito. Um, and I'm not exactly sure when that happened, but it had to have been almost simultaneously because they, they were doing it, or maybe it was licensed. It, who knows what the, the, the deal actually was, but DW I think is a company that's known for really, really doing things well and properly. Yeah. They would never, they would never have just stolen the, the idea. They, they absolutely um, went there and bought, bought the patent, which was basically just him showing, showing how it's done. And, 
early DW pedals, you see a lot of the chain drives of varying levels of sophistication. Uh, at one point, they kind of tried to s- solder it on, and then some of them are held together with pins. But they, um, to me, what that shows is that they they were experimenting. It wasn't like, all right, you know, start mass producing these. They, they really wanted to see what they could change and improve on on the pedals. Um, so in 1983, um, the the guy who invented the, the 5002, his name is Dwayne Livingston, and he is alive and on, on Facebook. And he'll, he'll tell you ab- about, um, you know, ab- about the 5002. The early ones are very interesting. Look, they have three towers. So it's, it's a pretty primitive design, but it works. And it was at the time, probably the only practical way to get a double pedal. There was, there's double pedals going all the way back into the early, 19 teens um yeah that are really cool it's really cool to see see one that's that old um think about somebody playing slayer on it or something you know it's just like (laughs) it was a different motivation but the the design is remarkably similar so yeah yeah but this was the first like modern this was like a big step forward okay yeah for, for sure and especially because dw doesn't leave anything alone that their r&d department is is really really active so the 5002 changed a lot between then and now if you look at a 5002 it doesn't have three towers you know it has a, a, a little change in the casting it's pretty pretty brilliant little um uh change to make to the pedal but i'm i'm really glad that dw did acquire those um the rights to produce that pedal because it was definitely a good brand to carry the torch yeah yeah definitely and shout out to Dwayne Livingston obviously who you've talked to a lot and I've talked to him and he's a very nice guy and um we were going to get multiple people on here but it kind of just is more streamlined to have um yeah obviously Vincent kind of do the the whole the whole thing so um thank you to Dwayne but that's awesome it's so cool that just like a guy I mean, I'm sure he was in the drum industry and everything, but kind of invented this. Yeah. This super cool. Thing. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. He probably wanted, yeah. didn't, was tired of carrying around two bass drums and, and needed to play something with double bass. Um, yeah. So it's important to note, too, that during this time period, DW is still producing pedals for Gretsch. They're still called the floating action. You could get not either nylon or chain drive. Um, so, so Gretsch had their own chain drive version. Um, and in, in the in the 90s, most brands are really feeling the the effect of the Japanese brands coming into the market so strong with such a strong product, and they're able to produce it cheaper. So I'm not sure when the Japanese brands started util- utilizing Chinese or Taiwanese production, but most American companies also went down this path during that time period, probably because they had no choice. Um, it's very, it's a lot more expensive to manufacture parts and to assemble in the United States. Um, so DW, I believe this is just speculation. I believe made that change in two parts, which was a really good way to do it. Um, I think they probably got, they outsourced all of their parts to Taiwan or China first, had them shipped over to America, and then they were assembled and quality checked 
in, in their factory in Oxnard, California. So that gives you a better chance to oversee your product directly rather than outsourcing the entire process. But later on, probably early 2000s, they did move, uh, as far as I can tell, um, all of their production and assembly out of the United States. So you could, where it used to say USA on the footboard, it starts saying the drummer's choice. And um, gotcha. I don't want to get into, um, we can talk about this in the Patreon episode a little bit if, if you'd like, but um, there's a, a lot of speculation about this move to, to a, a more global um, economy and things being produced in, in Taiwan or China and whether they're better or worse. Yeah. But these companies almost certainly did not have a choice. If they wanted to continue existing, they had to follow this trend otherwise just go out of business. And so them moving their production to Taiwan and China, Taiwan is, um, as far as I can tell, it's pretty, it's very similar to, to America in terms of, uh, like having a safe workplace, um, being fair in terms of the number of, of hours people have to work. Uh, they do get paid obviously, uh, a lot less than an American worker would get paid, but um, the factories there are are not they're not less yeah. less sophisticated than than things in that, America. Sure. It's really just it's an efficient, cheaper way to produce your items. And if you oversee the process, there's really not too much of a, a loss in in quality, especially with DW specifically the way they did it. I never noticed. Um, most people would think, and I would think this too, that that their their products they're currently producing are still very good. They're they're not yeah. they don't have a ton of issues. Um, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, so Tama Camcos. Uh, most people have probably seen a Camco pedal that was made in Japan and has the, the Tama branding on it. Um, when Camco split, Tama got the the name, but they must have also either negotiated or or figured out a way to produce their own chain drive pedal. Um, I'm not exactly sure how, how that would have worked, but they have their own pedal called the 6735, and it's very similar to the chain drive 5000, but definitely made in their own, in their own way. Like all the castings are, are different. It's, it's similar, but it's really just kind of a better, more, um, streamlined heavy duty version of the Camco 5000 pedal from America. Yeah, it looks I guess thicker is not the right word, but it definitely looks a little more uh beefy. Um kind of as you get into that like 80s-ish uh pedals and hardware where everything became thicker and beefier. It um it definitely has that feel. I like this period too for some odd reason I didn't know about it and then like when I found out about the Tama Camco stuff, it was just like one of those like just that's classic drum history stuff is like Tama gets the name and the rights to produce the pedal of their own, but like DW gets the machine yeah. stuff, correct? The they, machine. They get okay. all the actual stuff and I believe the patents as well. So what most yeah. likely happened was if there was some kind of negotiation, which there must have been to have divided it that way, at some point Tama included the right to make their own pedal using using that design and they may have, yeah. they may have just done it, but um, for the nineties, that was a, a pretty, 
Tama had their own pedal and it's um, the style for, for Japanese pedals at that point was definitely bigger is better. Everything was really heavy duty. Um, but they had that pedal in their, in their lineup for most of the nineties. Um, and I believe it, it went out of production maybe in the early two thousands. They did do a, a reissue recently. I'm not sure if they're still making that, but uh, Kimco had a whole line of pedals um, in, in, in the nineties. So uh, the, the HP 35 is the regular Kimco chain drive. They had HP 38, which is called a Camco Extra Light. I'm not sure what that is. I'm not sure if I've ever seen one of those. Maybe it was, um, I mean, it's in the catalog. I've, I've, I've never seen it. It probably, there was some, some kind of slight difference that, that made it more lightweight, I guess. Um, and then they had their own pedals that were kind of derivative. Um, one called the Flexi Flyer, the Pro Beat. Uh, you can just look at 90s Tama catalogs to, to see this. But in there, is the 5,000 pedal. So it's cool at that point, you've started in, in Milwaukee, you've moved all around the United States, you've kind of gone off to England a little bit, and now you're off in Japan. And the the amount of derivative pedals that, that came of that design made by Tama is uncountable. I, I still see pedals made today by big companies that are essentially just the, the 5,000. So it really took that design and made it um, available to, to, to everyone. Yeah. Can I ask, um, before we move on, when did, so DW, obviously the split with Tama and DW getting the, the, the Camco stuff happened in 78. Did DW pretty much instantly decide to make the like kind of iconic red plate on the bottom or was that a no. little bit later that that um there's a really cool evolution of the dw pedals and and when i get further down the rabbit hole i might start collecting and documenting these because my goal cool. is to do the, the same thing i've done with speed king which is to meticulously analyze and try to map out the history of the whole timeline my plan is to do that with the 5000 pedal as well um so I'm not quite there yet, but no, the earlier one, the earlier ones did not have the red um, floor plate. It was it was more silver, and then it was black. Um, and the 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 footboards. I mean, it's it's the same as as the other other eras where things slowly start changing out. Just imagine mm-hmm. that times ten because of DW's R and D department was trying different things. And the really cool thing DW's done, and I. I thank them for this because it's make it makes repairing and restoring these pedals so easy is that modern DW parts work on all eras, even going back to mm. Martin Fleetfoot. So I, cool. I, I could put a new, a brand new Delta hinge on a Martin Fleetfoot and it will absolutely play better. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. And, and all different kinds of things. So if something broke, if you wanted something more substantial, they're, they're what I call infinitely repairable. There's enough, because they're still being produced and the parts are kind of expensive, but because there's a lot of parts available and they're still being produced, you will always be able to repair your DW pedal. So that brings us into what I call the modern DW era. And that's 2000 until present. Um, and I'm going to go over quickly what models they, they still offer to, to my best knowledge. This may be slightly um, out of date. So they've got a double chain turbo, um, 
and a double chain accelerator. Um, I'm going to really quickly try to explain the difference between turbo and accelerator. It's, it's not easy to do, but if you imagine a turbo cam is a perfect circle, an accelerator is um, a different shape. Um, and what that does is it, it, it changes the action, the way that the beater kind of throws towards the head and the way that it responds. It's a little bit quicker and it can also be um, more powerful. Turbo is what most people are used to. If you are used to playing a DW turbo and you st- you stepped on an accelerator, it would feel different to you probably. But turbo is is a very smooth um, action. Most people I, I know prefer that. Um, so then you've got uh, a solid footboard. Those are just accelerator. A heelless pedal, also just accelerator. And an XF, which has a longer footboard, also available um, in just accelerator. They also have, and th- these are 6,000 pedals technically, but you can still get a single chain turbo um, from DW. It's a 6,000. If you look at it, you'll say that looks exactly like a 5,000. Um, yeah. I'm not exactly sure how they've, they've done their, their numbers. but um, And you can get that in either single chain turbo or accelerator. And you can also, just like the really old school ones from uh, you know, 40 years ago now, when they were developing them, you can still get a nylon strap pedal from DW. It's called a 6000 NX, if you want to look that up. Um, cool. So even though all the production is done in, in um, I would guess, Taiwan, I think a lot of people are, are looking to tie, Taiwan at this point as a, a really good option for manufacturing. Um, it may be possible that the pedals are still assembled or quality checked in Oxnard. Um, I would, you know, I would need to get that from somebody who, who was, who had firsthand um, knowledge, but sure. over, yeah. overall the quality and reputation was maintained, which is not what you can say for a, a, a lot of reissues when, or, pe- no. or pedals pe- that pedals that people liked in the past and people are still trying to make them. It's very difficult to, I think DW did a really amazing job at, at, maintaining yeah. the, the, the quality and reputation of the 5,000 pedal. And it, it would have been maybe easier to discontinue and say, um, okay, let's develop a completely new pedal, which is sort of what they did with the 9,000 um, mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. But they, they really kept the 5,000 on, on the map and still continue to o- offer parts for it. So I think that was a really, yeah. a really smart way to do it. Um, I agree. And I I would say like in both of our lifetimes, I mean, it's always existed. So like if you didn't tell me that like this pedal goes back to technically like the 40s, um, I would just think it was like an awesome kind of modern pedal. Obviously, DW did so much updating and all that, but it's never like a um, like how the Speed King came back. It was like to me, it's like a it doesn't have that like this is a vintage pedal that people still use to be like, you know, um, or Rogers new pedals. It's like, it's not like a throwback. It's like a, I use it because I like it sort of thing. Like I've always liked it. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, 5,000 and I don't know this, but it has to be the most popular pedal ever. Um, yeah, I just, 
because I, I asked everybody for a really long time, especially at drum shows, well, hey, what pedal, what kind of pedal do you play? And people either said a 5,000 or a pedal that was derivative of the 5,000. So it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Sure. A lot of these companies, Rogers and Ludwig specifically, they, ha- they have their reissued pedals. So you can get a, a new Swivomatic, you can get a new Speed King. I think that the, the path that those companies have taken is they need to sort of pay homage to, to their legacy. A lot of people mm-hmm. were really upset when they took away the Speed King. And in fact, they even made a group on Facebook about it that ended up being an awesome group for all different kinds of discussions on Speed Kings. Um, but yeah, people, they, they have to offer some of these, some of these classic items. And it, I think it's really cool to do that. If you're, if you're a modern brand, you have to have your own, your own pedal. So I'm not knocking what other companies do, but what I can say is that I think DW did it in a very intelligent way. I would agree completely. Yeah. So the DW 9000, I'll talk about very briefly. Um, it was invented by a guy named Lucas Jacobson. And I, I met him at the last Chicago show, 2019. Um, he was exhibiting, but he had the prototype there. And I, I have a, a, a funny picture of, of me holding the prototype, really excited looking at it because it's the very first 9,000 pedal. So a lot of people play 9,000 as their, their main pedal. I remember that's the pedal I played before I found Speed Kings. Um, even without knowing anything, you know, a, as a teenager, I wanted the 9,000 because it was the nicest, the nicest one. And yeah, but if you look at that pedal, it is a lot different. I mean, it's not a 5,000 pedal, um, especially the double pedal has so many changes, so many bearings. That pedal is ridiculously smooth. Um, but yeah, that was developed in 2002, I believe by Lucas Jacobson. And, um, however, the, the design or the patent or licensing was transferred over to DW, you know, they, they really created that. You can view that as an extension of the 5,000 because that's probably the starting point. And then he went from there with figuring out his different mechanism and action. Yeah. Man, I remember when they came out. I mean, I was like 12, so I was pretty young, but I just remember thinking like like seeing it and it just like just the look of it, how it is just like it just looks I I, mean, I know it's not made of like titanium, but like um it looks so expensive and it is expensive. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's just it, like it, thinking it, it like and, this and- is like the holy grail. It's a really nice pedal. No one's going to buy a 9000 pedal very few people, let me rephrase, are going to buy a 9,000 pedal and complain about it because people will always complain about things. But it's a great pedal. It's reliable and they use the same principles. So there's a lot of parts that transfer over. But if your 9,000 pedal breaks, and I know this because I've repaired several of them, it's a lot cheaper to repair your 9,000 than it is to buy a brand new one. And, and they're infinitely repairable. Even the cast pieces, yeah. if, if you break a cast piece, it can be replaced. You know, you don't want to, there's no reason to try to weld it back together or anything. It's easier just to replace it. But um, they also make another pedal. And I don't, I'll just say, I I don't really know anything about this, but they have a pedal that is, um, what's it called? Like a machine drive pedal or something. I should have done the Mm -hmm. research for this, but they, they actually make a pedal that is, is made of machined aluminum, like CNC'd uh, aluminum. And it's, 
it's made in the United States and it's a really nice pedal, but it's also like $900 for a single. So that's out of the reach of, of almost anyone. But if you want an example of how expensive it is to make things of, of uh, really nice materials in the United States with, with, um, with the labor and environmental regulations and all the things that, that uh, bring the price up, that that's the ultimate example, a $900 pedal. I'm sure it's great. I've never actually played one because yeah, (laughs) but I I, I will someday. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a very nice pedal. Well, and, and like before I mentioned, oh, I know it's not made of titanium. Now I remember they do make the DW9000 titanium, which I remember seeing, I think, yeah, a guitar, yeah. at a guitar center. I was like, this pedal, like like a regular 9000, which um, I've played and I have a friend who uses it. And it's like, but the regular double pedal is like 650 bucks. And the titanium, I mean, you see them used now for, I mean, they're over $1,000. Um, I think that was a, so, a, a limited edition thing, too. So it's not its not right. only maybe that it's superior materials, but also um, yeah. they only made maybe a certain number of them. I've seen like gold, yeah. gold-plated gold ones, too. That, that's that's one, awesome. one cool thing. I haven't gone down this, this path too far yet, but anything is, is possible. So you could actually, um, I could take a regular 9,000 pedal and make it completely gold-plated. It would be extremely expensive to do so. But um, that's another thing that I want to look into in the future is maybe more cosmetic things. So maybe a a 9000, but your tower is a different color other than the standard black. Um, Yeah, because a a lot of a lot of people are always going to play a 9000 or or maybe a 5000 pedal, but they are customizable as well in terms of the cosmetic aspect. Yeah, people love that. There's there's a um, nine thousand two double pedal that's gold plated on eBay for twenty six hundred dollars. Um, Grab it. So grab it, there you go. dude. <laughs> I I just bought it while we're talking. <laughs> oh man, I was about to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. So um, yeah. I mean, that's the the nine thousands definitely, and and that's kind of the last uh, really the big last in the evolution up up till this point, right? Yeah, th- that's the that's the end of my timeline because they're still producing these pedals. So it, it will go on. Um, there may be changes in the future, but probably not a lot because it started off as a good design. All of the problems over time, as we discussed by various people in the line, all of the problems were addressed. And now it's at a point where it can just sort of sustain itself. And that's why as, as a business, you... One of the big problems with Speed Kings was the eras that they produced bad ones really hurt mm-hmm. them. And everyone will always rem- remember that as, oh, well, Speed Kings are nice, but this. So th- th- they've, they've really kind of kept up that, that reputation. And, and now's, the, now's the point where they really get to capitalize on that, where they, it's super streamlined. They've got their factory overseas that's, that's pumping them out to however many they need and they're they're good reliable pedals so yeah that, that's yeah. that's basically the end of the the timeline um in 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 the patreon episode there's some other stuff that i'll get into some more details because there's another era that i would call the derivative era and that actually i have that listed as 1960 to present so that that would cover all of the pedals that were made after the martin fleetfoot that were designed by 
you know, in, influenced by the 5,000 pedal. Sure. And there's a lot of them. I'm sure. I mean, it's sort of one of those things where once you see, if you're a, you know, a drum builder or like a manufacturer, once you see it, you can't unsee it and know that it's working. You're like, okay, well, of course it's going to influence you. This is like, yeah, you know, why, why not uh, do that? But that's cool. Well, all right. So as we hit the end of the, the timeline here, I think now is the perfect time. Um, first, I want to say a big thank you. And I should have done this earlier. Uh, and I hope I pronounced his last name right. But Kyle uh, Krasuski, who started the Vintage Drum Workshop slash Camco 5000 Pedals Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sent me a message a long time ago um, and was just talking about it and doing the episode. And I think I said, yeah, Vincent and I have actually been talking about it for because we've been talking about this for a while, but he connected me with Dwayne and um, it just, again, super nice guy, very passionate. So everyone should go and join that Facebook group, vintage drum workshop slash Camco 5,000 pedals. Um, So thank you to Kyle. But um, so Vincent, why don't we again, tell people where they can find you because the stuff you do is just awesome. And like maybe describe a little bit about, you know, what you can do for people who are, looking for an old speed king or, you know, beyond that other stuff you can do. Okay. So, um, vitalizer for the past five years has been heavily focused on speed Kings. Um, I came up with a modification for, for the speed Kings, which really, really helps them out a lot. And, um, it's so the, the demand for speed Kings, especially from 2014, onwards um was really high because ludwig stopped stopped making them so they're the 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 reissued speed king is coming out now but um that's kind of been nice in that it's allowed me to start working on some other pedals a a little bit this year did end up being really busy for speed kings as well but about a year ago i started doing what i would consider the research and development for other types of pedals. Uh, the first one I did was the Speed Ludwig Speedmaster, which is another strap drive extension spring pedal. And then I moved to the 5000. I've also done um, Swivomatic, and I'm going to do a Slingerland Tempo King as well in in the future. Um, but yeah, I'm working on all of those all of those pedals. So similar to how Ippolito's had had their their shop that did repairs and modifications, I do the same thing for speed Kings, as well as 5,000 pedals. Um, and you can buy pedals off of the website, vitalizerdrums.com. And you can also send your pedals in to be repaired or modified. Um, and the, the new service introduced will be 5,000. The price is going to be cheaper than speed King. Cause I can do them faster. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the basic, um, plan for the for the business moving moving forward i i I am going to do um hi-hat stands and other hardware will hopefully be introduced at some point as well because i know there's a there's a demand for it um but yeah i restructured the website and the reverb store so there's always pedals in stock and ready to ship that's the biggest change from last time i talked to you that's great before you almost always had to wait in some way in order to, to get your pedal but what i do now is i always make time to make sure and um, so for 5,000 pedals, you'll see I've got maybe like 10 or, or so that will be listed cool. between now and um, the first couple of weeks of, of the new year. Um, 
And yeah, that's great. Customer send-ins continue continue to be really steady. I, I always thought at some point they they would fall off a little bit, but there's I have a lot of repeat customers, and I have a lot of new customers. My advertising is almost entirely um, word of mouth. Gotten a lot of um, a lot of business from the previous podcast as well. So good, th- good, good, good. Th- yeah, th- thank you for that. But. Um, so the service structure is uh, a little different than it used to be. I've created some basic services, um, which are cheaper and take less time. Um, but there's also the, the same high-level services, Relic, which I mentioned last time, which is original paint, but mirror-polished yep. footboard, and Super, which is um, refinished paint and, and the mirror polishing. Any color you want, um, I've really gotten that process a lot more streamlined. So if you want a pink uh, Camco 5000, can absolutely do that. It's, I, That's it's, awesome. It's not, it's not too, too difficult. And I have lots more of, you know, more standard colors as well. Cool. Man, I think that's the way of the future is I think uh, everyone loves Speed Kings. But as you said, the 5000 is, is hands down probably one of the most, you know, played pedals in the world so for you to be taking them and um, modify them why not i mean people love that stuff down the road i'd love to send you my old 5000 pedal which i think is 90s i would imagine it says made in the usa um nice so and uh and maybe i'll I'll post some pictures of it it's really it's been dusty since the day i got it um i think i i forget what i traded i traded a dw practice pad kit for it one of those which i'm sure people know the little one with the arms and the little <laughs> white pads which i never used um so i <laughs> traded that for it uh probably 10 or 15 years ago and um and i love the thing but um yeah this is uh this is an awesome episode and again per usual i appreciate you taking the time and being so prepared and what i'll do too is link in the description um i'm gonna put the link to your old episode because we keep talking about it and um and again, for people, they can go to drumhistorypodcast.com and then find this episode. And then there I'll put uh, Vincent's whole timeline. Um, so it's going to be awesome. But uh, again, Vincent, I appreciate you doing this and uh, and taking the time to be on the show and sharing your knowledge. And, and everyone can go to vitalizerdrums.com and yep. learn more about what he's got. And um, on that note, Vincent, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Bart. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. This is a Gwyn Sound Podcast.